to episode 453 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, maybe not even our pets. Joining me for today's news roundup, Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow and director of planning at George Mason University's National Security Institute. Nate Jones, who's the co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder of the National Security Institute and really a hundred other things, the busiest man in national security. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for the day. Let's start, Nate. The week produced a giant regulatory international dogpile on artificial intelligence. It's like everybody woke up and said, we have got to regulate artificial intelligence. And what's disturbing to me, at least, is how similar the Chinese and the Canadian and the European and the American proposals for regulation are. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a number of governments, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd almost think it was coordinated, right? But we're seeing a number of them demonstrate, if not the willingness, maybe even the the ability to impose some regulatory requirements on at least certain types of AI. A lot of these are focused on these generative chatbots that have been hitting the market in rapid succession here in the last few weeks. And, you know, I think for years now, AI has, I would say, generated a lot of concern People have sort of let their imaginations wander about the potential risks of AI to jobs, to security, you know, the issue list goes on and on. And so it's not surprising that you're seeing a lot of people jump in. In my view, I think, you know, in a lot of these places, what we're seeing is in some ways a little disappointing and uninspired, I would say, overall. And we can get into each of them sequentially, maybe. But you're seeing them kind of sort of take regulatory proposals that they've imposed on other types of technology and with a heavy focus on their pet issues. You know, when it's when you're talking about Europe, a lot of it's privacy focused. When you're talking about China, a lot of it's focused on you know suppressing certain views and types of speech and just graft those on to AI technology. And some of that may work, but some of it may not work very well. And so, you know, when it comes to the substance here, to me, a lot of this seems somewhat predictable. And, you know, one of my biggest concerns overall is that the U.S., despite now, I guess, showing some interest in doing something in this space, still lacks a lot of the real capability to do it because of the dysfunction of our political system. You know, it's still hard for me to imagine generating enough support for really any ideas out there to impose any types of restrictions or even guidance on on AI. And so I don't know if you want to jump into this and talk about some of these proposals specifically, or if you want Jamil to do that, but I'm happy to start sort of rolling through them and expressing my views on what we're seeing and from some of these countries and what that's like to, like to produce. Uh, well, let's give Jamil a chance to pick up on some of the things you've already said. Thanks, Stuart. And Nate's exactly right. I mean, I think what's shocking here is the level of commonality between, you know, where China is, where Europe is, and where other other countries are thinking about going, right? Even the Biden administration talking about potential proposals to limit access. And I think we're, a lot of this, a lot of this really sort of shows itself in this crazy letter that 30,000 people have now signed for the six-month pause on AI work, you know, sort of quarterbacked by Elon Musk. But, you know, Steve Wozniak, I mean, these, you know, these, are, these are not small, you know, Andrew Yang of former, you know, candidate for president fame, you know, Max Tegmark at MIT. I mean, these are serious 
people, right? You know, Yuval Hariri, right? I mean, these, some of these are serious people, and and I don't know what a six-month pause is going to do for anybody. You know, but the pause, mind you, was so that government can regulate in the six-month pause and can take action to set guidelines. Is this the government has any idea what the right thing to do is in this rapidly moving space? And the ideas the government does have, as we've seen now with the, with the Cyberspace Administration of China put out and, you know, the EU data protection, whatever, you know, name your EU institution. I can't remember the name of it, the Data Protection Authority, whatever it is, Europe-wide. The guarantee, well, I that's, think. Well, that's, that's, that's the Italian one. But then there's the European-wide. Right. European that, Data Protection the, the, Board, the yeah. EDPR, yeah, Whatever, right. 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 Those clowns, right, who think they know about yeah. AI are going to help us, you know, make sure that it's not bad for us. I think the right answer in this space, not surprisingly for people who have heard me on this podcast before, is that, you know, a lot of it's going to play out in the marketplace, right? I mean, I think people are watching what's happening. You're seeing a tremendous explosion in innovation and ideas about how to use AI, ways it's being applied today. And we should just shut all that down so that Elon can, you know, we actually, it all came out, right? The truth came out. Elon just launched XAI, relaunched XAI, right? So he really wanted a six-month pause so he can catch up, not a six-month pause so we can all figure out <laughs> what the government ought to do. Sure. I mean, you know, China, as Jamil mentioned, proposed a set of relatively strict controls, I think, on research, development, and use of generative AI products. You know, a lot of the most restrictive requirements are imposed on those who are providing services directly to the public, which, you know, I think is a concept that seems to me to be gaining some attraction, right? If you're just using AI in a lab to do, you know, scientific research, you may not have to worry so much about explainability and transparency and things like that. And so when it comes to China, you know, when it comes to, to engaging with the public directly with these kinds of tools, of course, a lot of the focus is going to be on suppressing certain types of information and speech, right? And so you've seen them, among other things, focus on, you know, what they say is making sure that these types of products reflect the core values of socialism and don't contain subversive messages and so on and so forth. And so I think there's going to be a heavy dose in China of, of censorship. And you've seen some of these regulations in other contexts with social media and search and things like that really, I think, limit American technology company participation in the market there. And whether that ends up being explicitly stated in China or being implicit in the way they impose some of these regulations on these companies, I think what you're likely to see is, you know, continued domination in this space of the domestic market by Chinese tech companies and very little participation by U.S. companies, I suspect. So I, I will add a new fact to this discussion. I've been playing with the Bing image creator, which is a lot yeah. of fun. It's, yeah. it's, it's mid-journey, I think. <laughs> in fact, I hope that we can do a graphic illustration of today's podcast. <laughs> in the in the blog, pulling on this, but in the course of that, I said I'd like to see a representation on a map of the divide between the United States and China, and I got a content moderation. You scumbag! You're violating our rules. A message. <laughs> And so I started playing around with, you know, how could I violate the rules some more? And I asked for an American flag. I got one. I asked for a German flag. I got one. I asked for a Taiwanese flag, and I was told I was a scumbag yeah. uh, violating <laughs> the rules. And then, interestingly, I got the same message when I asked for a Chinese flag. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on, but it's pretty clear that Bing and Microsoft are doing some kind of political correctness censorship of their own AI with an eye on China. Yeah. So 
Yeah. I, my favorite part, Nate and Stuart, to your points about the Chinese rules are that the creators of AI capabilities in China, their tools have to prevent discrimination based on race, ethnicity, belief, country, region, gender, age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, all the things the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party actually does on a daily basis, including yeah, like interning a million, a million Uyghur Muslims, right? Like, you can't do what we do every day. Oh, by the way, our entire social credit system premised on exactly those kind of biases, but you can't do it when you're creating your AI tools. But my favorite was the part that says, look, you, no violence, no obscene, no pornographic information, and no content that might disrupt the economic and social order. Translation, nothing right. that might it's hurt the Communist Party. Yeah. It's almost as though they asked ChatGPT to find every content limitation anybody had ever proposed on AI <laughs> and dumped it on the internet. <laughs> okay. So the Biden administration is just sort of saying, oh, I don't know, maybe. That, that's how I read yeah. it is. They want to say they're thinking we're about intrigued. it. We're intrigued. Yeah. Not if you have any much. ideas, throw them our way. And, Let and us know. Maybe we'll consider them. Yeah. And, you know, NTIA doesn't really have any real regulatory authority to speak of. And so, you know, this seems to me to be a brainstorming session they're trying to kick off or something like that. But right. unlike Jamil, not surprisingly, you know, I do see a role for the government here. I mean, I agree that the market is doing a lot and you don't want to, to impede some of this innovation and creativity that we're seeing. But, but we will. You know. Well, I, what I would like to see, I guess, at a minimum is some kind of guidance on what we would like to be accomplishing here, right? And if we leave it entirely to the marketplace, I you know, I don't know how many Silicon Valley watchers we have here, but, you know, we're going to end up with a bunch of AI focused on hot dog, not hot dog, right? And, <laughs> you know, while some of that has value and can spawn other useful things, for sure, I would like to see some at least incentivization in the same way we've done with some of the climate legislation, not necessarily imposing heavy restrictions, but in finding ways to incentivize things that are actually productive for society more broadly. I think surprisingly, the reason that there is so much interest in regulation here among uh, technologists is not that the you know ChatGPT is, is going to get your pronouns wrong. But that AI at some point is going to be able to do things we don't understand yeah. and to influence the world in ways we don't understand. And that there are enormous incentives if it wants to accomplish something in the real world to find ways to accumulate power and then to use that power on behalf of the goals that it believes it's been given. And, you know, this leads to, you know, the famous examples of burning down the planet to make more paper clips or whatever. And that is not a risk that can be completely dismissed. And yet it's surprisingly not a feature of most of these regulatory right. proposals. Right. And again, I think that's in part because a lot of these things are just, you know, off-the-shelf products that they've applied to other things. And right. they're kind of focusing on their same, you know you know, handful of pet issues that they've cared about historically when it comes to tech policy. But I think, you know, I do think there are ways to address some of that with a little bit of a lighter hand, right? And try to make sure that, you know, there are some guidelines out there. And I think the one of the risks that I see, I guess, is as we've seen with other types of tech policy, once the industries get sufficiently mature, they gain political power 
and it's increasingly difficult to regulate them. And so I think, you know, there's some, you know, I think reason to hope that there's some early intervention here, again, not with too heavy a hand, but to see some early intervention here. And I think the other potential advantage of that from the perspective of the United States is, again, historically, we've seen them largely unwilling to step into the fray on a lot of these things. And what that does is largely seed ground to these other countries to move forward with things. And it limits our ability to push back on those because we're not, frankly, doing much of anything. And so it lets them lead. And then, you know, inevitably, because these companies want access to these markets, they will follow. And that allows them to set the rules. And I don't think that when it comes to AI, we want to continue to allow this to happen. So, Jamil, are you willing to settle for regulation that uh, ensures that the big dominant players stay big dominant players for another generation? No, look, first of all, I don't think it's going to happen. I think what we're actually seeing is OpenAI, not a dominant player, yes, funded by dominant players, but not a dominant player, coming out of nowhere. So we actually see a startup playing one of the most critical roles in this space. I don't think that's the situation here at all. I actually think what's interesting about, you know, this whole notion that, you know, the government can help us figure out guidelines and figure out, you know, boundaries and send it the right direction, I'm all about you know, incentives. I think incentivization, if you're going to regulate, is the right tool of regulation. But I'm not really sure what it is we're worried about in the sense of, yes, I, I hear all the fears that AI is going to run the world and do new things that we haven't thought of, right? But at least for right now, it seems like the market's incentivizing the right things, which is it's not hot dog, not hot dog. It's create new ideas or take, form, you know, d disparate yeah. information, bring it together and allow humans to iterate on that. To me, you know, ChatGPT has made my life dramatically more effective because I can use it to, and leverage the information you can gather. And I can ask it for citations and I can go double check those sources and, you know, it makes me faster. Now, I'm not using it that way yet because I'm still not sure about the, like, the, is that the right thing to do, right? I saw these old school, you know, old person hangups yeah. about it. But I will tell you, like, I can see where it it dramatically accelerates my ability to do things. And I just don't see this like, oh my God, we need to regulate it right now because God forbid the guidelines aren't right and it's not incentivizing the right things. Where, what's the, where are the wrong incentives? I don't see them. What's happening with AI that's everyone's so worried about? Right. I kind of agree with you that, you know, you could get it if you work at it to profess its love for you or for Adolf Hitler, but that, you know, who cares? I thought it was interesting. There's a piece of research out of Stanford that I just loved. It was just a brilliant idea. They said, well, if we want to know which way this artificial intelligence is being tilted, why don't we just make it fill out every public opinion poll on the planet? And then we'll see who... It, just, it agrees with most of the time. And they did that. And it turns out that if you just run it through the standard AI, and obviously there were multiple different engines, but they mostly tended to be about this, come out to this level. It said the people whose views are best reflected by AI are minorities, low income, political independence, and men. So a male, low-income, minority independent is most likely to have its views consistent with the AI until you impose the human reinforcing filters, which are designed to bring the AI back to a proper view of the world. And then, remarkably, it agrees with rich liberals more than anybody else, I, which completely confirms my view of what the purpose of all this regulation is. <laughs> I'm sold. Forget the regulation. <laughs> there you go. We there won. Go. Nate, Nate agrees. Yes. 
Victory! <laughs> okay, let's move on to the other big story of the week, which is the what I'm calling Texera's leak. This is the airman who, on his Discord channel, was re- revealing pictures and uh, summaries of all kinds of classified slides that he had access to in his job in Massachusetts. Matthew, this is a very weird story, mainly because... There's no political valence at all that I can see to his leaks. In fact, they're not even intended as leaks to the press. Yeah, it is a weird story in the sense that he's not been incentivized by, you know, Jaguars and cash the way Aldrich Ames was. And, you know, and he's not (laughs) hacked off about not making enough money or the military not recognizing his true genius, therefore he's going to work with the Russians or the Chinese, which is often the motivation for these ne'er-do-wells that leak our documents or hand them over to our enemies. It seems like he was into the idea of being a cool dude in his Discord chat forum and sort of being seen, you know, his nickname or his handle was OG. And I think he saw Which him. is hard to get when you're only 21. So I know. Well, I guess when the rest of your crew is 14 and 15, you are yeah. the OG relatively, but I mean, it. so it seems like he was an immature guy trying to impress other immature guys, maybe some gals. And, you know, so that's where we are in terms of his motivation, at least based on what's been reported to date. But I, you know, I know you're coming on to the bigger issue, which is, or the more interesting issue for us national security types, which is the endless debate around access and who gets to see what. And of course, all of us lived through the post 9-11, we can't have information siloed anymore. And so when you unsilo information, you amplify the opportunity for these things to happen, especially when we've got over a million people with a TS clearance. And so part of me thinks, throw the book at him, make his life miserable, make an example out of him. But this is kind of the cost of doing business if we want everyone to share everything and to avoid these silos. I don't, you know, I don't know that there's another way to skin the cat. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Matthew's right to highlight this tension between what used to be a need-to-know system, I guess still nominally is, and really the need-to-share environment that we intentionally and sort of, you know, self-reflectively created in the aftermath of 9-11 and the intelligence failures leading to the Iraq war. So I do think that part of this is a problem of our own creation. At the same time, you know, the motives that underlie Jack Teixeira's decision to put this stuff on Discord are not that different from the motivations that a lot of leakers have to talk to the media, right? To prove that there's somebody and that they have information that other people don't have. A lot of times these leakers do leak because they've got a beef inside or trying to get something done that they couldn't get done otherwise. But sometimes they're just telling some because they want somebody to listen and think that they're important. And that was Jack Teixeira's sort of core move. I'm important. I want people to recognize that I'm important. Now, he did it in a way that that is catastrophically bad. He revealed uh, pictures of classified information to audiences, you know, 14 and 16-year-olds, as Matthew points out, that he knew, some of whom he knew were foreign nationals. And I do think you got to make an example, but the reason you have to make an example of Jack Teixeira and throw the book at him is not just because he did what he did, but because you didn't make examples of Edward Snowden. You didn't hold Edward Snowden accountable. You let him escape to Russia. You've never held the Russian government accountable for having him in their country. So Chelsea Manning gets 35 years, okay, in a military court-martial, and then Barack Obama t- lets her off with seven? 
because that's the yep, right message yeah. to send to every leaker. Oh, if you're doing it for good reasons, you know, then it's okay to take a ton of highly classified information that literally killed people and just put it on the internet because, you know, hey, it's, it's you had a good motivation. Well, you know, just think when you do things like that, you create an incentive to do this thing again. And we've seen this thing increase in speed. We saw Reality Winner. We saw Vault, Vault 7, you know, Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and now Jack Teixeira. There's more to come until we start holding people accountable and show real consequences. So uh, let me see the, the silver lining here in the reality winner case and this one as well. The government found these people and busted them within days. That's a good sign. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's just talk about, let's talk about the reality here. One, the New York Times and the Washington Post pretty much found Jack Teixeira <laughs> as fast as, if not faster than the FBI, number one. Yeah. And number two, like right. Teixeira was terrible. Like reality winner actually, you know, she got <laughs> caught because apparently like her documents were watermarked or whatever. They had some, but he was, he was acting in true name on these forums. He wasn't really hiding. Everyone in the forum knew who he was. They knew where he worked. I mean, like he was the yeah. easiest of any of these guys to find. I mean, so it's no shocker. In fact, it's what's shocking is the FBI didn't wrap him up before the post could get a story out before them and the New York Times named him. Yeah, yeah, I also think just a couple more thoughts on this, and that is, yes, Teixeira's tradecraft was non-existent. You know, he got tired of typing in the document content, <laughs> so he started taking photos of it on his desk with other personal <laughs> items around. Okay, yeah, yeah. and then the other thing on Jamil's litany of breaches where the consequences to the bad actors was little to none, the shadow brokers case you know, where they stole all the top flight NSA tools that we use to do all kinds of stuff. No one's ever been fingered for that. Nothing Mm. has happened on that case. And so it's Or the lawyer or the FBI lawyer who lied in Crossfire Hurricane literally changed is is, is a U.S. asset to is not a U.S. asset. That guy got off with no time? Like, I mean, are you kidding me? He should have- He he kept his license. It's outrageous. Just appalling. Okay. Let's move on to Montana- which has done the first full ban of TikTok. Jamil, is this what we think we should be doing? And is Montana the place where we should be debating banning TikTok? Well, look, I mean, the answer to your question is yes, we should be banning TikTok. And no, we shouldn't be doing it on Montana to start with. The federal government should be acting. But look, I mean, we've known for a long time all of the challenges that TikTok poses. We've been talking about it since the Trump administration. Donald Trump tried to ban TikTok. Well, at first he tried to sell it and get his friends at Oracle to buy it, yeah. and then that didn't work out. And so then, you know, he tried to ban it, and then there were these ch- these challenges. And now it looks like there's bipartisan consensus in the federal government to actually ban it. The Biden administration has a bi- piece of bipartisan legislation, the Restrict Act in the Senate, that they support. There are multiple bills, including by one by my friend Mike Gallagher in the House, that that could that would permit this to happen in a way that's more efficient than current processes would allow. And so I think, I mean, if you watch that China Select Committee hearing that Mike Gallagher chaired and Raja Krishnamurthy was the ranking member on, I mean, there was not a single member who doesn't isn't concerned about China and the, the threat TikTok poses. Then you watch the TikTok hearing with the CEO, and I mean, he was eviscerated by every single member of that. that I mean, there was, not some, there was not one person who stepped up and said, no, yeah, I really think we should do with the American people, which, by the way, the American people apparently, the users of TikTok actually don't want it banned. So this is an interesting dichotomy where Congress is leading, not following, imagine that. And so we'll see. Montana is probably the first, you know, what we've seen this on privacy too, where a few states go first and then the federal government's like, oh, we need to, now we need to get involved because we need to clear the underbrush and, you know, and, and preempt this stuff. So I think 
you know, I like that Montana's gone. I think it's the right thing to do. I wish the federal government would get its stuff together and do it first. Well, there's going to be lots of litigation. I think that Montana in federal court with facing First Amendment claims is not going to be the most credible proponent of the U.S. national security interests. So there, there is a risk here that just like Trump kind of produced a ban for reasons that looked flaky and weird and offhand and therefore got bad law made, that we could see more bad law made here in terms of the First Amendment interests. Certainly possible. Certainly a possibility, but you know. But now that we're on to bad law, Nate, (laughs) uh, the California Court of Appeals got a geofencing case that struck me as like as easy as falling off a log to uphold. And they managed to say, no, no, this is not legal, uh, a legal use of geofencing, except that we're going to use this cop-out for courts that want to make law but don't have the cojones to actually make law. They said, well, it's illegal, but not yet. Because this was a good faith a mistake. We should preface this with, you know, this is a decision of one appellate court in California, so right. we'll see how long it holds up. But yeah, I mean, this is a use of a geofence warrant, and this is where law enforcement obtains a search warrant. It typically directs a technology company of some sort to produce information about who is accessing their services or devices that are accessing their services from a particular lo- location on a particular day and time. The judge here who improved the warrant initially, the magistrate judge, imposed a three-step process whereby, and I think this is pretty typical of these kinds of warrants, right, where the government gives Google the warrant. Google says, here are the device IDs, anonymized, that we're accessing our services during those days and times. Law enforcement takes a look at that information, identifies which of those devices are potentially of interest to them, and then goes back to the tech company and says, okay, tell me whose devices these are, typically in the form of some kind of Google account. And, you know, the appellate court here sort of looked at whether this complied with the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And I largely disagree with the judge's analysis like you do, Stuart. I think, you know, the judge acknowledges, well, I guess first I'll say the biggest problem the judge seemed to have with the warrant was around particularity. And this is a requirement that a search warrant has to particularly describe the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. The judge himself acknowledges that the warrant does exactly that. The place to be searched is Google's databases that contain this information. And the things that they have to produce to law enforcement are pretty well spelled out. And so what the judge takes issue with here, factually about the warrant, is that it gives the government discretion to then identify which accounts Google has to produce identifying information on. And if you analogize to other types of searches that the government does all the time, right, where they review somebody's email inbox from Google, or they search file cabinets in a hotel about, you know, who's been staying there for the past week or month or on particular days and times, there's all kinds of irrelevant information. And the government has the ability to sift through that because the place to be searched is that place. And they're looking for the things that are of interest to their investigation and that they're authorized to seize. And so to me, the particularity argument doesn't really hold up here. 
And I think the real the real potential issue with these geofence warrants is around probable cause and maybe though to I think to a lesser degree overbreath. And the answer really kind of depends on how you're looking at these warrants. Again, it depends on whether the place to be searched and the thing that you're determining probable cause based on whether they have evidence in their possession is Google or if each of these device owners and their location is being searched when that information is provided to law enforcement. And again, the, the judge kind of indicates that it's Google that's being searched, but I, you know, I don't really think that that's necessarily guaranteed, right? Because, and even if it is, it, poten- it presents a potential problem because Again, law enforcement has to show probable cause that Google possesses relevant evidence. While people have cell phones in their pockets all the time and are carrying them around, you don't know if those people are using Google services. And they never present those facts in the case here, in the affidavit in support of the warrant. So I think, you know, the defendants here had a decent argument that the government didn't have probable cause to believe that Google possessed evidence that was relevant to them. I think they well, but you know, I would bet that ninety to ninety-five percent of those cell phones people are carrying around have Google enabled, including location services, and they certainly are pinging stations, cell tower stations. So, that, you, but you have you to present have to, that you, evidence, you, right? And they didn't really argue it that way in the affidavit support of the Do you really think they can't take the judicial notice of the fact that it's highly likely that Google has relevant information here? I mean, it, better than 50% chance would be probable yeah, cause, right. wouldn't it? I think that's right. And so I, th- I don't think that's a slam dunk, but I think the defendants, even on the way the judge framed this and was looking at this case, had an argument that they could have advanced. And I think it was stronger than the particularity argument, which I think is just bogus. But I think if you're looking at this through the lens of each time the government gets information about a device's or an individual's location, it's an independent search and they have to present probable cause with respect to those individuals, which is kind of how the judge talks about the issues in the particularity context, then I think it's a lot harder for the government. And this is going to end up then going one of two ways, which is, you know, the government could start saying, look, This is focused on Google. Google possesses evidence that's relevant to us. We have the right to go in there and search them. All of this process you're imposing on us is just superfluous. It's not constitutionally required. Just give it all to us. We'll look at it and get what's relevant to us, right? Right. And I think, you know, so it could become an all or nothing thing. And I think the other possibility is this just becomes a process where they have to get multiple pieces of legal process or multiple search warrants at each of these stages, and it just becomes a bit of an annoyance that produces largely the same result. And so... So I'm going to challenge that a little, because I actually think having Google in the middle, which, I, you know, in principle, I don't like, has a very useful, practical impact on privacy. Yeah. Because Google can say, we're not going to tell you who these people are. But we will tell you, everybody who was within this this particular geofence, so that you can look for other patterns. We'll give them all unique identifiers that are anonymous. And in this case, they had five or six locations where the criminals who ultimately 
killed a guy who was collecting cash from businesses for deposit, and they killed him when he tried to make the deposit. So they had been following him around to various pickup points. And so if you could find people whose phones had been active within a uh, hundred yards of where he was as he was traveling around at multiple different points, you kind of say, yeah, I'm pretty sure those are going to turn out to be people I'm really interested in. And then you say, okay, I've used all this anonymous information to find that there are six people out of the thousands and thousands of people who were included in the search parameters who I'm actually interested yeah. in. Now, that one, you haven't had much of an impact on people's privacy right. up to that point. And two, that sure as hell feels like probable cause to me. Yeah, I think that this is largely a privacy protective process that judges are imposing on these warrants because they know the potential breadth of these things, just in terms of how many people could be swept up in the original production. And, you know, I think there is a question as to whether or not that's even constitutionally required at that stage. Right. And if it is, then I think what you might see is just an iterative process where they have to keep going back to the court and getting an additional approval from the judge as opposed to just going back informally to Google and having them narrow it. But I think in that case, you're kind of getting the same result just with some procedural annoyance for the government. And so, you know, I don't know. I think the biggest potential change that these cases could result in is if the government pushes for an all or nothing where they're just like, None of this I don't is think actually required. To. I don't think they will I think either. they feel like this is a pretty good deal and they'll take it and, you know, so that the privacy restrictions are better than imposed by the Constitution. They're imposed by Google, yeah. our true master. Yeah, exactly. But I think you're right. And I think I suspect that they'll appeal this decision. I think they'll try yes. to hold the existing process in place and avoid the additional checks by a court or oversight by a court at each of these stages and just continue. Can they really on. appeal this? They won. That's a good question. We'll see. Yeah. I, you know, I certainly don't expect the California Supreme Court is going to be a haven of law enforcement support. So if it does get appealed, I don't know that you're going to get a different result than this. No. And I think they'll continue to, in other places and in other districts in California and around the country, continue to try to utilize the process that you see in the underlying warrant here. So the legal world doesn't often have advanced tremors before the big quake. But I think that's what we saw out of the Supreme Court this week. Matthew, the, the court ruled on what seemed like a very technical question. It got a really, it was actually kind of a fun opinion to read, but it's setting the stage for what really could be a legal earthquake. I agree. Sometimes the court does this. They sort of, you know, leave a breadcrumb trail out for people that have ideas about what to litigate. And what's interesting here, obviously, you're talking about the story in which the court came down in favor of allowing litigants to challenge the constitutionality of the administrative state structure of entities like the FTC and the SEC. And the issue before the court was the agencies took the position, no, you've got to go through the whole administrative apparatus to litigate the constitutionality of the administrative system you're in. And the litigants said, no, we should be able to challenge the constitutionality of it outside of that and go to a federal district court and begin the process there. And the court came down, I think, interestingly, 9 nothing in favor yeah. of those litigants saying, 
Yeah, if you're going to challenge the fundamental constitutional structure of an agency, you don't have to litigate before that agency's or within that agency's administrative court system. Yeah, I, if I remember right, uh, Justice Kagan said these agencies know a lot about the statutes that they regulate under, but the Constitution, not so much. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, there are obviously members of the court that I think are more anxious to sort of sink their teeth into a case that you know considers the constitutional merits of these organizations or these regulatory agencies but that said i think across the court obviously a 9 to nothing opinion they all recognize that you know the federal court system is the vehicle to take up constitutional issues it's not a crazy and the constitution the constitutional issue that's at stake that everybody is waiting for that'll be the earthquake is the one that says what are you talking about, independent agencies? What the hell is that? You know, you're either part of the executive or you're nothing. And that's a very strongly held view over 20 or 30 years on the right. And a lot of judges resonate to that because you can't really find these quasi-independent agencies that report to nobody but themselves and for whom even the administration doesn't take full responsibility. There, there is a credible position that says, no, look, you, you are part of the administration and the administration has to take its lumps when you do stuff that you shouldn't do and it has to be able to fire the people who are doing it. And there's no middle ground. The independent agency thing is, a, it's a kind of progressive doctrine that we should all be ruled by experts and the experts will know best and we shouldn't let the politicians too close to regulatory affairs. And I just don't think that has much purchase on the imagination anymore. I think that's right, Stuart. And I think, so I'm very sympathetic to, the, to everything you just articulated for democracy and accountability reasons. I think politicians, though, both right and left over the years, have used these administrative agencies to point at them to either skip taking on the heavy lifting of actually making decisions themselves or to point at them and blame them when something goes wrong and sort of, of say, oh, it wasn't us. It was those guys and gals. And so I think from a good governance and accountability perspective, you know, a reckoning, so to speak, or the earthquake that you described may not be a bad thing for democracy in America. So this is where I hope to use Bing image creator, artificial intelligence. Everybody who lives in Washington knows that outside the FTC, there is one of the great socialist realist statues in the Capitol. And it is this giant muscular man and an even more gigantic muscular horse. And the man is holding the bridle and pulling the head of the horse down. And the title is, I think, Man Controlling Trade. You know, it's so very 1930s, but it's a very compelling statue. So I have asked Bing's AI engine to show what happens when the horse escapes the man's control, as may well happen this, when the earthquake comes. So we'll see, uh, you know, watch for it on the Volley Conspiracy when we put up the blog notes. Okay, I, let's do some quick hits and go home. 702, the renewal of 702 continues to be debated. And one of the 
surprises in the debate was the discovery that the FBI had actually searched on the name of a congressman. It turns out that was Congressman La Hood, and they had searched for any indication in their database that they had communications to or from or about him. It now emerges through leaks that the reason for that was that he was believed to potentially be a target of espionage or foreign influence because of some of the things that he was doing in the area of foreign affairs and maybe Chinese espionage involving agricultural matters. So it does raise the question how many of those FBI searches of the database are really about protecting people. I'm going to argue that most of them are because so many of them were generated in the course of looking at cyber attacks and trying to figure out who the victims of those cyber attacks are and to warn them. And so the campaign that's been created to say, oh my God, every one of those searches without a warrant is shocking and abuse of power targeting Americans. A lot of the Americans are being targeted not by the FBI, but by foreign governments. And this is using 702 to find them is hardly an intrusion on civil liberties. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Stuart. I mean, look, it's interesting that LaHood is obviously concerned about the breadth of these searches that were used with his name in them. I mean, he rightly should be. But I think he also makes it clear that he supports 702, supports its reauthorization, knows what a critical tool it is. And so, you know, I think that this is part of the point. Everyone's, oh, it's a backdoor search and we're using it to, you know, gather information on Americans. Let's be real, right? The the FBI doesn't have the time or the energy to be wasting time looking for the average criminal and 702 authorities, right? They are doing the right thing, which is they are searching the database for appropriate purposes to try and figure out what's what's happening. And yes, mistakes are made. But again, this was another example of a mistake made by the FBI, discovered by them, self-reported once again. You know, this is actually an example of the system working, not failing. LaHood is right to be upset, but he's also right to say this law is critical, needs to be reauthorized. And anybody who thinks that, by the way, it's going to be better for privacy and civilities, if we just force the U.S. government to stop using this very protective law, force them to go overseas, use 12 triple three authorities where there's no rules, and do more surveillance that has limited rules against Amer- against targeting Americans, and by the way, it's going to be less less effective for America's national security. That is worse for individual privacy and civil liberties and for our national security. Crazy that anybody's thinking we shouldn't reauthorize 702. That would be a catastrophe. I agree with everything Jamil just said. I think the other thing that gets lost in this debate is when we talk about FISA abuses in the Carter Page case has nothing to do with 702 at all. Totally different set of authorities, totally different tool. Yeah, it is interesting that a lot of the Teixeira leaks, You, if you go through them, you'll see references to FISA or intercepts or SIGINT as the source. It makes you realize that we are a an intelligence superpower and for one reason, because we are really effective at doing wiretaps. And if you screw with that capability, really disastrous. It would have been disastrous in the Ukraine conflict. Okay, two more stories and then we will be done. One, Western Digital is having a really tough time. They've got hackers in their system. I guess the good news is the hackers got in and wanted to ransomware them, but they apparently couldn't do much about encrypting all that data. Maybe there were really good backups. And so they are engaged in a remarkably public campaign talking about all the access they have, the millions of documents that they could disclose. They're even giving 
interviews saying, we've got all this stuff. Western Digital better give us the money or they're going to be really sorry. And I guess this is a sign that maybe encryption-based ransomware is almost out of, out of juice. But now we need to figure out what to do about people who are engaged in basically doxing ransom. And then last, the Indian government has decided that it's going to stamp out fake news about the Indian government by requiring social media companies to delete false statements as identified by the Indian government on pain of losing what amounts to their Section 230 immunity. You know, of course, this is wrong. Uh, it's a bad idea. It will end in tears and in authoritarian abuse. But I, I have to say, I'm just not sure that it's that much different from what the CDC was doing. It didn't issue orders, but it might as well have. It said this isn't true, and the social media rushed to take stuff down that turned out maybe was true. Uh, I mean, there's a vast difference between a government agency saying, here's what we understand the facts to be, right? And an agency, by the way, with expertise— and what the Indian government is doing here, which is choosing the facts it likes, right? Which, by the way, is very similar to what people's concerns were about the DHS, you know, whatever, misinformation, disinformation yep. board. That was the concern about that, which to me is fundamentally different than an agency with actual knowledge, like the CDC. Again, you can disagree with them, putting out what it thinks are factually true, right? The two completely different things. And if private actors decide on their own platforms to act based on what the CDC tells them is true, that's their choice, this is completely different when the so government he, mandates what the truth is. You might think, and I understand the view, that, well, they're doctors. They're all in this for the health. We should trust them. And I want to challenge that. I'm sorry to do it right at the end here. Because they're public health authorities, which means they have to give advice that takes into account how the public will react and the fact is the public often reacts very selfishly. They want masks for themselves. And once if they're told, yes, masks are really important, they're going to go out and buy them, and then it will be hard for nurses to get them. And so the, the CDC said, oh, no, you don't really need a mask. And not because you didn't need a mask, but because they wanted to make sure that the, the people who were actually delivering medical services got them first. All of their public statements are issued with one eye on what's true and one eye on how it will affect public behavior, which means that sometimes telling the truth is not what they want to do. I, and so I do not think the CDC should be the gold standard for medical truth. They're an important voice, but they shouldn't be setting the standard for what can and can't be said. All right, but uh, we can argue that. I will. I'll give you the last word on that, and then I uh, was we'll just move. saying I didn't have COVID disinformation on my bingo card for today's Cyberlock <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Okay, that's it. Jamil, Matthew, Nate, this was great. I really enjoyed it. We are looking for a sound engineer, somebody who can take the place of the esteemed Mark Chernasik, who. Uh, Unfortunately for us, but good news for the legal profession, we'll be a lawyer by the end of the year. Uh, and so we need somebody who likes law but is willing to work for less than Mark's hourly rate will soon be. <laughs> so please do send us your CVs or expressions of interest at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com and leave a review and we'll read it on the air. This has been episode 453 of the Cyberlaw Podcast.
I'm sold. Forget the regulation. 